0: Since my time in Jerusalem, and and even more since I got back, I've been really troubled by the lack of civil discourse in the Jewish community.
1: From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pocoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we are speaking with journalist Jody Rudoren. Jody spent more than two decades at The New York Times, where she filled a number of important and high-pressure roles, including The Times' Jerusalem bureau chief. Now she's the Editor-in-Chief of one of the most storied journalistic institutions in Jewish life, The Forward. Jody and I talked last December, months before the COVID pandemic turned our world upside down. We talked about the role of Jewish media in North American Jewish life, Jody's vision for The Forward's future, and much more. Many of the issues we discussed, particularly the funding challenges that Jewish journalism faces, have only become more urgent during this crisis. In fact, some of the first organizations that closed their doors in the era of COVID are media outlets, which makes this conversation particularly relevant now and important as we think about how to rebuild the community in the post-COVID times. Thank you, Jody, for being uh, here with us in What Gives. Apropos journalism. Sure. Let's start there. Let's start there. What brings a person from the New York Times to the forward?
0: Well, my daughter, who's 12, uh, thinks this is a midlife crisis, (laughs) um, which I don't think is right. But I do think it's a little bit, it's not totally wrong either, because it is a little bit about thinking about life in chapters and thinking about um, who I want to be in the world, who I have been, and, and you know, doing a little bit of taking stock. Um, I have a big birthday coming up. And so I was thinking a little 25. bit about. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, I just turned 49. And I was thinking a lot over the last um, year or so about. I've been at the New York Times for more than 20 years. I was went there as a child. And I'd done a lot of amazing, amazing jobs there. And I just started to think a little bit about what else there might be and what my my passions really were. But the other, the, the uh, that's the personal side. The more, I think, relevant and public side is really about the state of journalism and where things are. And I'd been, since I got back, I was the Jerusalem Bureau Chief for the New York Times for about four years. And I got back at the end of 2015. And in the last next couple of years, I got involved in doing a lot of uh, digital innovation work and audience strategy work and really uh, connecting the newsroom to the business side and the new business model. And thankfully, The New York Times is in a great position. It has really reinvented its model to be a digital first model and to be a subscriber and consumer first model. And uh, there's, there's work to do, but nearly 5 million people are paying for the journalism of The New York Times. And there's a real outpouring for the quality journalism, which is great. But the rest of the journalism landscape is pretty dicey right now. Mm -hmm. Um, There are news deserts all over the country, local state houses with no reporters at all, newspapers, metro dailies folding all over the place. Half of American journalists have lost their jobs in the last decade. Now, the exciting upside is that especially in the last few years, I think people have realized that that is a serious crisis for our democracy. And there's some real interesting energy going on to find what is the new model for local and other kinds of journalism beyond the New York Times. And I started to realize that there was a very uh, important and exciting kind of conversation going on. And by the way, not insignificant amount of philanthropy going around around this right. sort of new idea of nonprofit journalism. So that's kind of the landscape I'm in. Kind of thinking, am I going to be at the New York Times forever? I've been here 20 years. Do I have 20 years left? What's my future there? And also thinking there's a lot of other people who both need creativity and leadership and also have some energy going on. Yeah. Then here comes the forward which is an institution that I had and kind of I remember looking at microfiche about it in history class in college. And I'd been to their gala in 2017 and was really inspired about the connection between the storied history of the kind of Lower East Side immigrant uh, assimilation process and a real digital uh, present. And then all of a sudden I read that they've decided to take this bold step to go all digital and that they're looking for a new editor to lead this transformation. And I just thought, well, here's A place that's ready for change that's eager for change here's a thing that really matters in the world a storied institution with history and something i know a little bit about you know i'm jewish i've been in jerusalem and i'll tell you one other thing which is i since my time in jerusalem and and even more since i got back i've been really troubled by the lack of civil discourse in the jewish community particularly around israel but and i thought this is an institution that can can, can work at their, that. Yeah. And then I just thought all those things came together for me and thought like, so this would be a more meaningful thing to do than be another person in a very large organization, leading it from success to success.
1: The experience in Jerusalem, that must have been Interesting. Which years were you there?
0: I got there in May, April, May 2012, and I stayed through the end of two thousand fifteen. So I got back literally January second,
1: two thousand sixteen. So a lot of members of of the Jewish Funders Network are like really concerned about, you know, telling Israel's story in the world and and some of them might have been upset about coverage of in the New York Times and some of them must have been upset. For other reasons that they covered, right? So how, I'm sure I have emails from most of them. From from, and I guess from both sides. Yeah. In terms of you know, you're doing this too much or doing this too little. So, how does one maintain a middle ground? How does one maintain faithfulness to fact and an unbiased reporting? And is there such a thing as an unbiased reporting when it comes to Israel?
0: Yeah, it's a great question and. What's what's interesting about this, Andres, is that, um, so I had been a reporter for, you know, more than 20 years before I went to Jerusalem, and I had covered uh, a lot of hot political topics. I covered abortion, I covered um, intelligent design, the fight over vouchers and charter schools, and I covered actual political campaigns. I was on the bus in 2004 with Howard Dean and John Kerry. So the idea of a conflict, a thing that people like really are on two sides of and see very differently is, almost axiomatic to journalists that's what most of what we write about is something with two sides and two perspectives or, or multiple and covering this was a completely different experience um first of all there are no agreed upon facts there are no axiomatic facts there you so there aren't that many trusted narrators or sources people don't walk you through well here's my perspective and here's the other perspective or here are the ba- here are the things we agree on and then the second way it's really different is is this reaction of Super engaged people and activists. they it is very difficult for people who really care about Israel or the Palestinians to see empathetically the multiplicity of perspectives on this experience. And I think what I came to understand was that it was the reason this story was so different was because people's very identity was wrapped up in this question of the narrative, right. which was connected to all the policy questions. So nobody was looking at this as policy, they were looking at it as like validation of who they are. Not only what they believe, but who they are. And what's interesting, as I think about this, the third way it was really different was that there was this whole organized campaign. On the right, it was a very well-funded campaign. On the left, it was um, a very well-endowed with people's time campaign, so there were Mm -hmm. like bloggers who are totally trained on just undermining the journalism. They had sort of given up on fighting about the actual stuff on the ground because it had been so stalemated for so long. And so they were really all about attacking the New York Times and often attacking me very personally in a very ugly way. Um, And they're much tougher on Jewish correspondence than non, by the way, both sides. Um, What's interesting, I come back on January second, two 2016, and basically over the last four years, all those things have become true about every journalism story, about all of our politics. Right. Because again, peoples I think people are much more um, thinking about American politics now in terms of their identity and this idea that this other person's perspective, who either voted for Trump or voted against Trump, is so different from me. I can't understand them and I don't care. I so yeah. find their views horrific. I don't even want to understand them. And instead, I'm going to seek my news from a place that reflects my opinion. To me, this is the most dangerous thing to our society and democracy, but I feel like it's just this thing I experienced was has now been extended. And and the core of what I'm saying is that the people, probably in the Jewish Funders Network, the people who are deeply engaged in Israel politics and policy and everything about it, they are not consuming the New York Times' Israel coverage or probably the Forwards in the way that they uh, that mainstream media is meant to be consumed. They're not looking for an objective, independent, fearless news source. They are looking for something that validates who they are and what they believe. And that's fine, but the mission of the New York Times is really not for them because they yeah. have a lot of other sources. They probably get information from the Jewish Funders Network about Israel as well yeah. as many other sources. But there's like these readers who will only know what's happening in the Middle East if we tell them, and that was the mission. So I just tried to really empathize with the criticism Respond. I was very. I respond to every piece of criticism I see, um, if unless it's just totally um, laced with profanity and about my looks. Um, but I really had to
1: keep focused on the broader readership. But at the same time, and I fully understand what you said, and we, we'll get back to that because I think that the issue of facts. I, I think actually, we when we started talking about narratives, we we made a disservice to epistemology in general. I mean, see, yeah. there are things that are narratives, but there are things that are facts. facts. The are not narrative. Like, I have this conversation about well, the Palestinians. You know, I said, well, there was a vote in the UN in 1947 that declared the state of Israel. You know, and somebody would say, well, that's the Zionist narrative. No, that's not a narrative. <laughs> that's a fact. That happened. Right. You know, like, you, know, didn't you, you, bring you that can up? say that that affected you in a different way, but not that it's or that you, know, you might okay.
0: understand its roots differently. I mean, a couple of things about that. So I often got asked, you, you, you mentioned, you started to ask, is there such a thing as objective reporting? Yes. Is there unbiased reporting? And, I, and how do you suppress your own feelings or wh- where do you? And one of the things I finally realized, I was like, so what, what are my biases that I bring to my coverage about Israel and about the conflict? And the one thing I will totally admit to mm. is I did not begin every article. I I did begin every, and let me say it a different way, I did begin every article with the idea that that was a fact, that the the world had decided that Israel had the right to exist as a Jewish state, Mm. and that for all, for our purposes, that was established. I did not come to every article with the way that, you know, Omar Barghouti of the BDS movement would, which was, maybe there shouldn't be a a Jewish state of Israel. So that was the, the thing I was, I definitely came from the perspective that Israel is a fact, The U.S. State Department accepts it. The UN accepts it, and that's where we are. Um, Now, during the time I was there, a bunch of um, UN member states said that the Palestine was a state, Mm. and we had to grapple with that a little bit because the State Department didn't say that, and that was our kind of. So, you know, we have to deal with those things too. But the other thing I'll say is that love playing the game with people about um, what the background of any story in Israel is. I used to ask people, "What do they think started the 2012?" Gaza War, and we would start with this jeep attack or this assassination and go back. Well, two weeks before that, there was this. Two weeks before that, there was that. And people want to say, well, what about 1967? what about 1948? And my joke is always, it's like every news article should have a nut graph that says Abraham had two sons. There was Isaac and there was Ishmael. (laughs) But like, there's not room for that, you know? And the broad audience doesn't need that. And it's not really, I think some people read the paper with a scorecard. They're looking for, did you mention 1948? Did you mention 1967? Right. It's not how it's meant to be read.
1: And yet, you know, we, me personally, and a lot of the people in the Jewish community are really concerned about how to better tell the Israel story in the news. So now if you step out of your role, you know, as as a sort of an outsider, and you were giving advice to people that want to tell the story of Israel in a, you know, in a more nuanced way, in a sympathetic way, in a, in a loving way. You might criticize, but you, you, wanna, you want people to, to stop the demonization. And So what would you advise them? What is a good strategy to do that?
0: Well, I think one strategy that is probably not good, and that I think we're seeing the what's the opposite of the fruits of, the bad result of, right, is trying to only tell half the story. Trying to, I mean, it's a little bit like when you tell the story of 1948, you can talk about being attacked and a righteous cause and protecting yourself and the valiance of the IDF. But you have to mention that a lot of people got displaced from their homes and that figuring out what's supposed to happen to them and also acknowledging some of the atrocities that happened around that, you have to be able to grapple with your whole history. I don't think it's effective to be like, why don't you write more about Israeli startups or the great wine and food, like instead of writing about the conflict? I mean, yes, and, you know, it can be. But I think when I talk about bearing the, the bad fruits of, I mean, I feel like we are now seeing a generation of kids who are hypercritical of Israel and part Jews who are coming up, whether they're through the day school system and joining, if not now or otherwise who feel like they were betrayed by their education and betrayed by the organized Jewish community because they were told um, a story about Israel that was much less nuanced and less complex than they were told about everything else. You know, they were told, like, the situation around Brexit is complicated or the situation around the former Yugoslavia is complicated or whatever it is. You know, situ- the world is really, really complicated, and I, I there is no place where the— Politics are more nuanced and complicated. The founding of the state of Israel was at a very particular moment in society, in, in the world's history. And, you know, the it's a little shaky, the whole premise. We're going to have a Jewish state that's a democracy that will also protect the rights of its minority citizens. And it's going to be these people were displaced, so they're going to live next door. And I mean, it's complicated.
1: So so you, you're basically saying something that it may sound counterintuitive to, to many of us, that is In order to create a more positive engagement with Israel, Dafka, right, on purpose, tell the two sides of the story. Because that's going to, you know, not at least not backfire when people feel that they're not being told all the aspects of a complex situation.
0: That is my view. I think that, I mean, also, you know, we've been through these cycles and accusations of pinkwashing or techwashing or whatever, of, you know, hiding the, ugly stories in favor of these positive stories. But I also think there's something more philosophical. I wonder what you think about this, which is there's a lack of confidence in telling only the happy part of the story. Right. Right. There's a there's a confidence that comes with, look, here's the situation. Israel is a great place. It's got these things going for it. It's you know, it deserves to exist it has the right to exist. It's the nation state of the Jewish people. And it faces real challenges. And in the face of those challenges, there have been mistakes. There has been complexity, whatever, whatever. Let's grapple with it. Let's grapple with it from a place of confidence and belief. Look, the vast majority of American Jews, like the vast 90-something percent, right? They want Israel to exist as a Jewish state.
1: Yeah, they're proud of Israel, like 95 percent. They're like
0: that. worried about the repercussions of its policies. They're worried about the, the details. They're not They're not like... Yeah, maybe we don't need a state. Everybody wants there to be a state. Um, but they're not jingoists, and they're not simpletons, and they're war- they also care about human rights. They deeply care about human rights, and they don't want a state
1: that, that's systematically oppressing people. But, but, but let, me, let me present another view to that. Somebody can come and this is actually a true conversation I, I you know, Yes, what you're saying is true, but the truth is that we're at war. We're in danger. So in a moment of danger, isn't it necessary to actually yeah to strengthen the core to sort of create more believers than nuanced observers of reality? We can't be objective any anyway. So let's let's go. You know, there's something to be said for propaganda in times of in times of danger and in times of. Danger. And that's that is a position that probably comes from fear but a fear that in some cases may be justified so a lot to
0: unpack there um i think one of the underlying issues here is how how are we as jews going to wield power be live as a powerful people and what does it mean to both have power and have fear um so both in america and in israel lots of power right um there's no doubt that israel has serious threats against it. I don't know if it's literally in an existential war, but but its its ability to tackle the physical threats it faces is fantastic. Um, the actual threat that Israel could be destroyed by its enemies, with the possible exception of you know an Iran nuclear bomb, is really small. It um, doesn't mean it's never going to get attacked again, but it has solved the suicide bomb threat. It has solved essentially with Iron Dome the Hamas rocket threat. And if you've ever been briefed by the IDF about what they plan to do when the next Hezbollah attack comes from Lebanon, you know that like, you know, there would be casualties on the Israeli side. but They would like decimate the Lebanese. So I don't think that those are actually existential threats to Israel. They're scary. They're serious. They need a serious military, but they have a serious military with a lot of our money, right? Yeah. The other thing. Question: There is when you talk about like we're at war and is there an existential threat? Is I think that you know there is an existential threat to the Israel's survival as a Jewish state from the status quo. I mean, I do not think that Israel will survive long term if the occupation continues. It will either face a much more serious set of condemnation and sanctions from the world, or it will end up not being a democracy. And if it's not a democracy, I think the vast majority of American Jews will not want to support it the way they have. So I think that that's one of the wars that Israel is facing. And speaking only about the physical threat that has largely been solved and ignoring the the demographic threat that has not been addressed is, I think, short sighted.
1: to switch gears a little bit. Sure. Now, to the to the forward and how many of these issues play out in the intra-Jewish discourse. So you mentioned about the, the polarization of views and the, and people getting really wrapped up, like not just in a news story, but it, it goes of their identity in that news story. So So how do you deal with that from a newspaper?
0: It's been very interesting to come into a new place and kind of, in sort of meet and greets with Jewish leaders or in email from readers to hear the differing perceptions of who we are and what we're getting wrong and what we're missing, because they are all over the map. So we are both perceived by the far left to have abandoned our kind of socialist center-left kind of roots, and we are perceived by the right as being way too liberal. We are perceived as being anti-orthodox despite the fact that we have this amazing uh, orthodox woman who writes about the orthodox world in a way that is so empathetic and so serious and and, and real journalism um, i think we're perceived to be, you know, anti organized judaism in a way despite the fact that like the bulk of our coverage is about that so i don't know what to make of all of that it doesn't really add up to anything <laughs> except for mm-hmm. what i said before about it being more in the eye of the beholder but i feel like what what requires of me and of us and of our staff is to be really clear about who we are and what we do and who we want to be in the in the digital moment and in the future which is um we want to on the opinion side really host the broadest possible respectful and provocative conversation among every acceptable legitimate opinion which you know doesn't include serious hate speech um but does include anti-zionism and does include settler you know whole israel kind of people and does include Palestinians and does include non-Jews and includes like anyone with a serious thing to say. Um, And we want to, you know, we really want people to engage with things that they would not have written themselves. So one of the things we're going to be doing in the new year is convening not just having all the, we right now do have a very broad perspective and spectrum. We're going to continue to kind of deepen that and showcase it and find ways to play people off of each other. But we're going to also start convening a series of forums where we bring four or five, six people who really know stuff about an issue but really disagree. We're going to bring them into a room, have them ask each other tough questions, probably a little tougher than what we're doing here, (laughs) and publish excerpts of that conversation. So it's like not let these things exist in these in silos, because one of the things that's a little not perfect about the digital journalism world is that every piece travels on its own. So the editor's ability to put one thing right next to another is more limited. And we can all this stuff can get filter bubbled into Uh, through social or other uh, ways. So we want to find a way to, you know, what you would write when you're trying to write your thousand word argument and what you would say when someone really smart challenges something you'd say are different. I think that journalism has a serious place as a pillar of an open society and of a a progressive and advancing society. I don't mean progressive in some political way, I just mean of a fair and just society. I think it depends on journalism as much as it does on the kind of institutions of government and and separation of powers and those kinds of things. That's why we call it the fourth estate. And I want to say, we talked a little bit about the platform for civil discourse, which is one of the most important principles. That we need in the jewish world and that the forward can provide but the other one is serious inquiry right in-depth reporting independent reporting a lot of people have asked me about what is our ideology are we progressive are we this are we that and i've answered by saying ours is an ideology of inquiry of respect for the idea that finding out what's really going on and that showcasing people's experiences Um, that holding power to account, that all those things are valuable in and of themselves. I did see at the New York Times an outpouring of support for that, particularly in the Trump era, in the era of fake news, in the era of um, disinformation online, um, in the era of hacking. There was a sense of now more than ever, we need real reporting and we want to support real reporting. We want to support, you know, there's the New York Times' ad campaign is the truth, you know, matters. And and I, I do believe there is both kind of grassroots and philanthropic support for that idea. And that is the idea that those are the investors we need, are people who are not only trying to advance their political view, but also believe that that rigorous exploration and that rigorous debate um, is good for society. Now, it, also those two things can come together, right? Like if you, like, this goes back to that confidence issue. If you really like, if whatever it is that you're trying to advance, animal rights, climate change, Palestinian rights, Israel security, whatever, if you like are super confident that your view is, you know, just and right and based in reality and truth and fact, then you might also think that having a strong independent journalism organization would ultimately yield your truth more than the opponent's truth. I'm not going to sort of get into bed with you around that, but I get that that might be how you think. But I do think it's it's really about this as a public good in itself, not, I hope they'll write editorials I like. That's a very small and short-sighted way of thinking about it. Right, right.
1: right. But it takes a, an act of greatness, especially by funders, to say, I'm going to fund a news outlet as a forum of ideas with which I may find myself disagreeing.
0: Yeah. and journalism have a lot in common in terms of the sort of core values right which is asking questions telling stories arguing (laughs) debate search for the truth i mean the search for the truth i hadn't even put it that way before but i mean what is the talmud if not like
1: crowdsourcing
0: you know i mean right but
1: crowdsourcing among the qualified that's a big distinction like not everybody goes into the talmud in other words that's
0: true Imagine the editing
1: process. Correct. Like it's not Talmud is not Wikipedia. Me, meaning, in order to and I think that's a, that's an important distinction. One of the tragedies of social media is that messages don't have a hier- hierarchy. You said that in English hierarchy. 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 Like you, it's you cute know, when you say hierarchy. is the is the is the same is the same values. You know, Nobel Prize in medicine that an anti-vaxer, right? Yes, exactly. So. Not to be too
0: grandiose about the forward or the New York Times and compare us to the rabbis of the Talmud, but right, there's a hierarchy. And that's what editorial judgment is for. So our role is to be super connected to the internet and all that conversation that's happening, also have expertise, also consult other experts, and kind of bring that together in a package. And before, in the old world, we did all of that except for... Kind of reading the the vox populi of the internet we would sometimes kind of go out and interview 10 people at a mall but mostly right. it was about that expert our judgment and the experts and it was very institutional whatever so we continue to do that filtering and editing and judgment that you imagine the editors of the talmud did to decide who got to go in or not and we also though there is i mean you talked about the danger of the anti-vaxxer having the same platform as the public health official i'm with you but i can't tell you how often you find either on social or especially in like reader responses to a call out these amazing stories and Jen, so we are now having right. more our journalism is so much richer because we have both the expertise and the editorial judgment and this kind of how does it feel to be experiencing x or y thing so we we really mm. want to do both those things and put them together but it is absolutely our judgment that matters.
1: Right. So, so social media at the same time empowers, you know, people that have very important things to say that wouldn't have been able to say it before when sort of a little bit of an aristocracy of knowledge uh, sort of controlled everything. At the same time, it also empowers, you know, every actor. Like it's yeah. it's, a, it's an equal opportunity empower.
0: But remember, it does a couple of other things too. I mean, so first of all, there's clear dangers in that, right? I mean, it also empowers Hackers yeah. and various yeah. uh, extremists, but some platforms, in particular, also have sort of self fulfilling controls of those things. Certain people say something on a platform, they get shut down by the more reasonable voices sometimes. But again, but I don't think. Look, I don't think that we can live without real journalism and real right. filters and real editors. And just let everything be published and everybody will fend for themselves. I think the readers are completely overwhelmed by that. The readers, the people, mm. completely overwhelmed by that. And uh, we have a, that democracy will fall apart if we just have a free for all. I mean, shouting from the public square doesn't work in a world of X billion people. I'm still getting used to the difference between being very much on the outside of the New York Times. We are sort of not part of any community. Versus what does it mean to be a Jewish publication which the communities we're part of and serve are big and fractured or whatever, but we are part of it. We are, I mean, I consider myself a Jewish professional now.
1: What do you think the role of media can be in terms of building stronger and better communities?
0: Well, I really do believe that informed people are better community members and are going to be better organizational members. I also believe that, you know, the biggest picture challenge for sort of the Jewish world, for our generation, thinking about that, you know, as leaders coming to the next generation, what's the biggest challenge? It's to engage people Jewishly, whatever that means. I don't think it says straightforward as it was in a prior generation, which is it means to get them to be affiliated with some organization or synagogue. But we wanna think about, there's lots of different ways to identify as a Jew and to think of oneself as having a Jewish identity. We wanna really think about that broad tent and help people, all those people, feel one step closer to that identity, whatever that means for them. Dean Beckhay, my old boss at the New York Times said this wonderful thing, which I've been quoting all over town, which is that the key to innovation in the journalism space, but it might be in every space is to be able to distinguish between traditions and habits. So what does that mean? Very interesting. Yeah. So traditions are core values, who we are and what we do, principles, mission for journalism, for the New York Times, to the forward, it's like independence, in-depth reporting, this ideology of inquiry, civil discourse those kinds of things those things they're sacrosanct we're going to protect them with our lives habits are the things we have developed to express those values based on the tools that were available based on the restrictions that we were operating under so dean liked to talk about how the idea of a of a of a news story that you that was a it's called an inverted pyramid the most important stuff at the top that so you can cut it easily from the bottom was invented because of a newspaper schedule. All the copy landed at the same time. They right. needed to process it very right fast. Even more poignant or powerful or whatever is the, the op-ed column, a sort of 750-word essay. Why is it 750 words? Because that's how much space there was in a broadsheet newspaper column. Right. Where, by the way, none of the opinion of today gets published. What's the mm. best way to publish an opinion today, to express an opinion today? I don't know, lots yeah. of different ways. So so what, what I'm saying is, so what innovation is about is understanding that difference and then thinking about well, what are the habits that work on the phone? What are the habits that work when people don't read it as a package for a half an hour in the morning, but read it all day, every day online and in the subway, whatever. What are the habits that relate to listening and to podcasts like we're on? But wait, here's why this is so cool. I've been talking about this traditions versus habits in the New York Times. Now I come to the forward and I think, oh, this is halacha versus minha. That's what we're talking about here. Now it is also true that some people think they have the same weight.
1: Although minhag, yeah, it depends what minhag, but, but, it, but it's minhag and then there's, and there's habits. There's habit that, you know, even in the days of Talmud, people would say that's, a, that's you know, minhag shtut. Like that's, a, that's not a valid, like that's mm-hmm. just a habit. But, but, but it gets me, what you're saying gets me to something else. When you talk about sort of the length of an op-ed piece of 750 words, and I have a similar problem at JFN that whenever I try to deal with an issue at length, So first of all, if I write something, God forbid, I do more than a thousand words, I get, you know, hang. But when I do stuff in my conference or Jeff and events, people like the TED style, the TED talk style kind of thing, 15 minutes and whatever. And sometimes I purposefully want to break through that, rebel against that. I say, listen, I have an argument that for really to be understood, it's going to take 2,500 words at least. And I don't want to make it in less than that because I don't want to. You know, I don't want to concede to the short attention span and, and you know, but on the other hand, like, so people are now reading it. So How one of the things we, we break that.
0: I mean, one of the things we found at the New York Times was, and not just at the New York Times, actually, the industry has found um, people do read long stuff on their phone if it's well edited. So, I mean, there's a website called Long Form there. I mean, people read... I mean, if it's well edited and if it has, if it's if it's made for the phone, and it has visuals and etc. But so like the, the New York Times, the the, the the tightest copy at the New York Times is the long stories, the because they go through much more rigorous editing. The flabbiest stories at the New York Times are twelve hundred words instead of nine hundred words, or eight hundred words instead of five hundred words. The five thousand word stories, you can barely find a find something to cut in them.
1: But the 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 New Yorker, for example, made a business model out of saying, we're going to do long articles. And if you don't want them, don't read them. Kind of sometimes they are excruciatingly long. But you get, a, you get an in-depth dive in a thing. And they didn't go bankrupt because of that. No, they, they
0: are successful. High quality. They know who they are. They know what they do. And by the way, they also have like this great podcast, which is a new habit to express their core values.
1: You think, you think that something like that, something that says that challenges people in the Jewish community, to just dig deeper and read for longer and invest more thought into that sort of the long form essay kind of thing that was so popular in you know, a few decades ago. Do you think you still have hope?
0: Um, I would say yes and or yes but. I, I do not think that what the Jewish world needs is more kind of overly long essays, but some, as what you said per- before, is bright. Some things. Should be told at 2,500 words. But I, I am equally interested and to some extent value equally a 3,000 word piece and a list that has, you know, the, right. the, the thing is to find the right form for the story. So what I, what we talk about is, it used to be a reporter would have an idea, talk with their editor, the conversation was, when are you filing and how many words? Now the question needs to be, what's the best way to tell this story? Who's the audience for this story? How are we going to reach them? And not just, you know, longer is better. Sometimes shorter is better. Right. I mean, sometimes it's like literally the most, I mean, I was talking yesterday with some editors about the day after Trump's executive order was announced, or the day that yeah. it was like before it was announced, The probably the most valuable thing we could have done in the early hours of Wednesday morning would have been a quick roundup of what people were saying on Twitter with a little a hint of analysis. There was all this stuff happening on Twitter. We bring to that knowledge about who's who and what the historic arguments are. And we could have put out a little a, a, a thing that would have taken an hour or less to do and produce that would have helped people but, navigate that. But, but and then, then we would do, later on, a 1,000-word piece or 5,000-word pieces me, that right, are different. And then maybe a week from now, we would take a 5,000-word look at it. Right, because We can do all those things look the challenge is this is exactly about who holds power in the media ecosphere right now and it is the the power of the journalists and the owners has been diminished by the democratization of the platform Mm. so it used to be that you know we really got to decide what you should think about when we packaged it up and put it on your doorstep and or on the radio or on TV, we programmed out the thing. And, you know, I was in, you know, when I was first an editor, I was in the front page meetings of the New York Times, and it was mostly a bunch of white guys deciding which six stories were the, that day's front page. And you as a reader like had no choice. That was the front page. And similarly, on the weekend there would be the weekend review and it would be filled with those idea stories and We got to decide when you should think about how brain science was related to Jewish ethics or whatever. Um, And we don't get to do that anymore. We really don't, because if you put out a thing that has nothing to do with what people are searching for or talking about, unless you're the New York Times, it is very hard to command attention around that thing. And so I think we do need to be a little more responsive to the ways that digital conversation and inquiry are happening organically. Uh taking some cues from readers about what they're interested in when.
1: I guess that is a a broader question for the Jewish community, right? Can we still attract the best and the brightest to work in, in the Jewish community? You know, and I think that in that sense, the forward attracts... The best and the brightest in the journalism world, and then they go off to do something else. For young, talented Jews, is this a place where they want to work? The Jewish community,
0: right? So I think that um, that's a really that's a really important way of putting that question. So I, early in my very short tenure so far, I lost a writer, Jenny Singer, who mm-hmm. had a ridiculously great style and instinct. Mm-hmm. Um, she was writing mostly about pop culture and dating, which had this kind of irreverent but never snarky voice and passion. She's the daughter of two rabbis who share a pulpit. Um, She knows a ton about Judaism. She's young. She was digital. I just thought she was great. And she left to go to Glamour
1: magazine. Um, And- That's a good thing. I mean, it's a a bad thing that she left. But it's a good thing that she has opportunity. Yeah, and it's a good thing that she considered the forward a great place to start her career.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, but so I guess, I guess the answer is both should happen, right? People should go from the forward to whether it's Glamour or mm. Barron's, where Josh Nathan Cases went, or the New York Times. Mm. And people should go from the New York Times to the forward.
1: As you did. As
0: I did. Because, but, but in order for that to happen, this publication. Needs to, you know, have a more serious sustainability and to to really be what we're trying to make it into in the future. I mean, and I think ideally that should be true across the Jewish world. That people who feel compelled to uh, be engaged and serving the Jewish people should be able to find well compensated positions right. in workplaces that are vibrant and fair and um, friendly it, and exciting. Yeah. And where they're cutting edge, that it's not some backwater, you have to kind of leave the cutting edge of your profession in order to serve the Jewish world. We should make it so that the choice to be in the Jewish world or outside the Jewish world is not a choice of kind of becoming a second class citizen in some way. And I think that there are, I mean, I'm new at this, but my sense is that there are lots of places really doing that. I was at this really um, cool place last week when we were in Chicago. I don't know if you've been there, but it's called Sketchpad. It's um, it's a co-working space for Jewish organizations. Oh yeah, I've and, seen
1: one in Detroit that is amazing. Yeah.
0: And I think their slogan is something like a space for Jewish innovation, and yeah. it's got that very um, you know loft-like vibe where you know young people want to work, but it's got like a sign on the on one of the little um, tea rooms that says tachlis. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like the room where you go to do whatever tax and I was like, it's so cool to have it say yeah. Tachlis, you know, and and um, so that was really great to see that. And I think I've been hearing uh, there's a lot of cutting edge stuff in the Jewish world, but then there's a lot of kind of crusty old yeah. And uh, anyway, I I guess what what we would hope for is the ability to cross back and forth. Jewish organizations should be able to recruit top people from the secular world who happen to be Jewish and working in the jewish world should not disqualify you for top jobs in the secular
1: world the opposite should be you know saying i worked at the forward should qualify you to go to the new york times inshallah Inshallah. thank you very much thank you thanks so much to Jody Rudoren for taking the time to speak with me. You can read the excellent journalism that she oversees at forward.com. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to share with us. Write to us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the work of the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org. And find us on Facebook and Twitter at JFounders. You can also follow me, at your own risk, on Twitter at Spokoini. I leave you with this thought from the book of Proverbs, chapter 11, verse 2. When arrogance comes, disgrace follows, but with the humble is wisdom. So, stay humble, keep giving, and join us next time on What Gets.
0: It's gefilte fish for breakfast? Kid out. That's what he says. And his staff says it's true and really gross.
1: From a can or he's like.
0: I did not ask. Sweet or savory? Oh, that's, my a God, that's such a good question.